to Scenario D, the podcast that takes you behind the magic by giving you the facts and a whole lot of feels. I'm Lish. And I'm Curbs. And this week we're soaking up the incredible artwork of the incomparable Sleeping Beauty. So prepare to be dazzled. And make sure you're wide awake. As we explore a film we've all seen once upon a dream. Okay, Curbs. It's time. I'm so excited about this one. I've got my Maleficent socks on. I'm ready to talk about Sleeping Beauty because I have so many thoughts. Man, and you know what? I got to be honest with you. I I didn't expect you to love this one so much. Like as we started preparing for this particular episode, you were hyped in a way I did not see coming like I knew I knew why you were excited on a certain level but you just took it a whole different place for me I know I mean I I, I'm kind of surprised myself because this is not a movie that I have historically loved and I still don't love it I just have Mm -hmm. a lot of feelings so okay let's start with start with the ranking which is like very hard for me I had to actually break down all of my categories because some of these visually a 10. Right. But sinfully boring film. So it's <laughs> not a movie that I'm like going to turn on. Like I watched it with my family last week. Half of them were sleeping. The other half were on their phones. Yeah. You had to convince them to watch it with you, right? Yes. But yeah. like it's so beautiful. So beautiful. I think I land somewhere around a seven. That's what I was going to say. Yes. I am a seven as well. And now it pains me to say that only because I think I gave Snow White a six. And I have to be honest that I enjoy this film immensely more than Snow White. So I feel like on the numbers scale only, like don't judge us based on just the numbers because there's so many other factors that go into that. Like for me, totally, this film is super nostalgic, even though I didn't grow up with it. Because you remember that new media project I did? in my undergrad where I was comparing like Cinderella Snow White and Sleeping Beauty with the songs. And it was like visually represented. I like, as soon as the film started, I was like, Oh my gosh, that project. And I was, that was the first project I've ever done where what I pictured came out. And I feel like there's potentially based on Mm -hmm. some of the things we've learned a parallel with how Walt might've felt with how well this film turned out visually with that being such a goal. Um, But we'll get to that. Obviously. Is there a particular, I mean, part of this film that stands out for you like a scene or a character or you know I feel like I feel like visually my favorite part is everything that happens in the forest like with the greens and the trees Mm. and Aurora's um like you know like forest dress is my favorite look for her um and then it's just like the meeting Philip like that whole whole part I just think it's beautiful I kept honestly telling my family like look at that tree look how good that tree looks and they were like wanting to hit me over the head because they're just like stop it's a tree I mean the textures in this film are exquisite like the one that really stood out to me besides the trees was when the three good fairies Mm -hmm. are meeting 
in that little box and the cups. Yes. Those gold cups looked so good. But you know that for me, this film's about Philip. <laughs> I love Prince Philip. You know, I've always loved Prince mm-hmm. Philip. That will never change. He's my favorite classical prince because he actually does something and he's so hot. Okay. <laughs> the way he pushes his hat up out of his eyes, I was swooning. Like I was alone in the living room swooning at this hat thing. And I was just like, oh, Philip, I know he's kind of pervy coming up behind her in the woods. We talked about that. He does come in. He comes in a little strong, you know, comes in a little strong for my taste. But still, I, I get it. I get the the Philip appeal. He's progressive. He's like, I'm a royal who wants to be with a peasant girl. So yeah. it's, it's a tough thing. He's pervy, yeah. but progressive. Like, what do we do with that, you know? <laughs> But I also, the thing that stood out to me this rewatching as well was the choreography of that mm-hmm. scene where Aurora is following the enchanted voice, like Maleficent, mm-hmm. to get up to the spinning wheel. It is so good. Like the cape dropping yep. to the floor on punctuated notes and slowly walking up the stairs. I had chills. It, it has always made me very uncomfortable, but in the best way. And also, that voice, is that the precursor to the voice of Atahalan? Because really, I was just getting Frozen 2 vibes. <sighs> A little really bit hard. yeah it's definitely it's definitely like really eerie the like her like walking up yes. to to touch it it's like ugh. so good yeah so good though so let's talk about disney we're we're approaching the end of the 1950s here and that was a really huge decade for disney as a company mm-hmm. a lot of things going on they had a big uh big year in 1954 specifically with the oscars winning cartoon short, documentary short, documentary feature, um, two real short subjects. So it's like all kinds of things. They're starting to build Disneyland. They're getting involved in television. They're doing live action. All these things are going on. And then also doing this, which is like a huge undertaking of a film. One of the things that I heard actually about Disney working on this film is that despite having a lot of ambitious plans, he had a really tough time immersing himself in this project compared to how involved he was in a film like Snow White or Cinderella because of all those things he had going on outside of animation, right? But being Walt, he still had to have like final say on everything, which I think ended up making the the film take a lot longer than it originally would have because yes, he was distracted, but still needed mm-hmm. to have final sign off on, on everything. Right. Because when did it actually start being developed at the studio? Honestly, I think early fifties. So they, they kind of advertise it as like, it took six years to make, but the early development they say was almost 10 years from starting that to actually releasing the film, which is so crazy, which is which is wild. That's a really long time. It is. But I mean, the, it's not like they were doing nothing while all that was happening, which was the case for like a Snow White or Cinderella. In this case, like the company wheels are turning. They're like putting out other films. And this one was kind of just there until they really picked up steam on it in the mid fifties. Right. Because movies like Lady and the Tramp, Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland, like a lot of those other classic Disney films came out in the 50s, but none of them really did that well. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that television was coming onto Mm -hmm. the scene, which is making it harder to get people into theaters. And not only that, 
but science fiction was becoming super popular in the mm-hmm. 50s. Like a lot of those classic yeah. movies like The Day the Earth Stood Still, Godzilla, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, that was what people were paying to see in theaters. So, I mean, an animated fairy tale can't really stand up thematically against a lot of those other hugely popular films at the time. It's it's also not the new kid on the block anymore. Okay, we've seen a few of these now. Like, it's it's been done. It's for kids. It was kind of falling into that pattern um Mm -hmm. because there's other other technological advancements in film it's some it's an industry that's constantly evolving doing things new making things look better more realistic so it's Mm -hmm. it's a hard one to keep up with and that was something that was actually really important for walt with this film it's that he wanted to do something different he wanted sleeping beauty to stand out he didn't want it to be like cinderella or snow white um and he actually like went with that and how he treated the movie, knowing that he wasn't going to be able to be as hands-on with this one. He brought in um, a gentleman by the name of Ivan Earl, which we think that's how it's pronounced, um, to be in charge of the design and artistic look of the film. And um, he kind of let this guy really take the reins in terms of how everything was looking and even to the point of having the animators follow suit with the look of the film. And I feel like that was something that was really noticeable for me in terms of like, especially an Aurora and a Philip, like they look different than how like Cinderella and a Snow White. There's like this certain like Disney-esque quality that they don't necessarily have. Some of the other characters definitely do, like the the three fairies and stuff like that. Yes, And you know what I think it is? You know what I think it is, Lish? I don't know. Tell me. Well, I'm going to tell you. So (laughs) I I think it's that characters like Philip, Aurora, and Maleficent, they are very angular. All of their shapes are like straight lines and 90 degree angles, whereas the Three Mm -hmm. Good Fairies or even Philip's father, they're very round. And we're used, at that point, audiences are used to seeing Disney as being like a soft, round kind of world where, I mean, Mickey is only circles, right? So they're introducing a lot of these different planes. And I noticed that even in that opening sequence, the, I mean, they're trying to layer so many backgrounds, foregrounds, everything together, but everything just looks flatter. Which means that yes. it's, I think I read somewhere that Walt's vision was for it to be a moving tapestry or a moving illustration, which I exactly. definitely pick up on when mm-hmm. you watch it, right? Absolutely. Like he wanted every frame in this film to be like a painting, to be mm-hmm. a piece of art. And that was very successful. Like, and it holds up, like even to this day watching it, it's one of the most beautiful films that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. So. so where do you think Ivan Earl got some of these ideas or like for what the design or the direction of the film was going to look like artistically? So I know that he was like very inspired by like everything like Middle Ages and that kind of gothic look and feel. Um, I was ah, reading gotcha. that there okay. was a, a book called The Book of Hours, which was like a huge inspiration. So I looked it up. It's a Christian devotional book, very popular in the Middle Ages. Oh, and if you look okay. at it, it's the like pictures in it are could be straight out of Sleeping Beauty like you know the the parts where they like pan out and then you actually like see the book like in the beginning when it's kind of jumping through the time periods like it looks exactly like it was taken from that book so I think things like that were a really huge 
inspiration. Mm -hmm. Being in charge of the like design and look, his main contribution is the backgrounds. So um, Earl's coming in and he's helping design like the layouts and the backgrounds. But then you have the animators that are obviously contributing to the look and the feel of the characters. And I think this is something we talked about with Mary Blair and Cinderella, where there was a clash there. And I feel Mm -hmm. like in that clash, Walt really sided with the animators a lot more. Okay, yep. But something that Walt really noticed when he's watching Cinderella, he's like, I had all these like beautiful designs and I feel like not all of them necessarily made it into the film. Right. And that was something that was like really, really important for Walt to drive home with this guy was that everything that we designed that was beautiful, like it's going to be in the film. So I think that was really, really huge and why we actually saw such a different look because Walt committed to it. Like he put his money where his mouth was at the beginning of this and he kind of gave the reins to this Earl character. Guy. And yeah. Right. And one of, I think I also read somewhere that the three good fairies were a very touchy subject during yes. the development of this film. Do you know anything more about that? Like have any more details? What's the tea? What's the hot goss? Um, I mean, I think that was one area where like when we talk about the animators and Earl clashing where the animators had a leg up where they like wanted to bring in some comedy to the movie. Cause like it, it really, they're at this point, they're getting good at telling stories, but they're moving farther and farther away from the like, the dwarfs elements that kind of started. Even if you look at some of the other movies that have happened in between, they're getting into Mm -hmm. um, like darker stories and they're, they're telling, you know, more, there's more character development and stuff like that. And then they're moving away from where they started, which was originally those shorts that were just all about the laughs and the gags with those characters. So they wanted to keep a small element of that in here. And I think, these three fairies is where that landed the three fairies and also that minstrel who gets drunk uh with the oh yes he's a fun little treat and then i actually have here in my notes that one of my favorite parts that i had completely forgotten about is when um the two kings are talking and drinking together and the one starts to use a fish as a sword and then they just start laughing about it i was like almost crying from laughing because it's so silly and you're right that that kind of silly, playful, whimsical energy is not as blatant or present in this film compared to some of the earlier ones. Like we talked yeah. about in Cinderella, how the mice became a subplot. There are no subplots in this yeah. story, are there? No. Right. No. It's really about like, honestly, it's not even Aurora's movie. It's really about Philip and Maleficent. And then the fairies are oh, kind of like Philip. the sidekick. Yeah. And one thing I did forget to mention about the fairies that I thought was interesting is Walt actually wanted them to be like all of the same originally and like not really have that much personality. And this was where. Yeah. And this is where the animators kind of came in and added a little bit of like Disney splash that we're used to. And I know I said like the forest scenes are the most beautiful, but I will say the most entertaining parts of the movie are with the three fairies and like baking the cake and the like make it pink, make it blue, like that. The fairies are so funny to me because they're like every aunt, 
or grandma or older woman that you've ever met in your life all mm-hmm. put together into these three, you know, stout, precious little winged ladies. <laughs> they're just they're just so nurturing, but also hilarious, yeah, like you said, they because are. Meriwether saying that the dress looks awful, for example, and then Flora's like, that's because it's on you, dear. Like, what? <laughs> what a line. So casual. What a moment. So casual. Oh, so casual, but so cutting, but also like that, you know, we've all had an older woman in our life who just says what she thinks because that's the truth and then we're yeah. moving on. Like that, Yeah, I, I love all of them. So that's so fascinating to me that Walt was like, no, let's just make them all the same so we can focus on the art. And it's like, I'm really glad that the animators fought back and won this fight because that, like you said, they're some of the most entertaining, if not the most entertaining parts of the whole movie. Yes. And I mean, I don't think they detract from like still how how beautiful it is. Even the stuff that's in in their um, cabin, like you can just see like the detailing on everything. Like it's still so intricately done and it's just like adding a little comedic spice just you know kind of ups the entertainment value of this movie i feel i love comedic spice give me yes, all you gotta have spice. it you gotta have it you have um, to do you want to talk about mark davis at all i mean i know you oh. talked about him in cinderella but i feel like this movie was really where he kind of like solidified himself as like the guy with yes. with doing both aurora and maleficent no easy task. Mark, no easy task whatsoever. Exactly. I mean, Mark Davis is one of Walt's nine old men, which is like fine and whatever. Mm-hmm. But he is also heralded by a lot of other notable Disney animators as being the guy because he was Walt's renaissance yeah. man. And renaissance mm-hmm. man, Lish, you might remember when we first became friends and roommates your dad described someone as a renaissance man and we just threw that phrase around all the time my mom described my dad as a renaissance your man. your mom yes yes even better even better we're putting eric up there with yeah. mark davis because he did fine art he did animal portraits he did you know caricatures he taught other people how to be animators and the, with so many talents he was viewed as the one who could play both sides of the totally. coin. So, you know, protagonist and villain. He was able to do both of those. And he and Ivan got along very well, which I think also yes. resulted in the success of this totally. film. Because he could be a voice for the animators in a room with an artist who's desperately trying to make a film look and feel a certain way. Um, and because he was so close with Walt, mm-hmm. he could also advocate for things like the three fairies, I, right? Yes. Having different personalities or for the look and feel of a certain scene. So, I mean, the movie couldn't have happened without him um, the way that it ended up being, right? He was just, oh, I love him. I love Mark Davis. He is definitely in my top three. Yeah, yeah he's in my top three Disney animators. Him, Andreas, Deja, and Glenn Keane. Those are my three guys. Which we'll get into the other two in the Disney Renaissance, but that's that's a right? that's a pretty good list. It's a good list, and I I completely agree. Like I don't think that this movie could have really happened without Mark kind of like right. bridging the gap. And like honestly, I can't believe he animated both of them. I know like Aurora and um, Maleficent, which is kind of crazy. But you know what? 
you can see it. You can see it in like the shape mm-hmm. of their faces, in the way that he drew Aurora's hair kind of with those billowing spirals and then Maleficent's robes. Like it's definitely there. And I think that that cohesion then between the good and the evil yep. made them feel like they both fit yes. in these super intense layered backgrounds. Because when the backgrounds are so busy, you have to do a lot to make the characters Absolutely. stand out. Yep. And I think by having some of those continuity pieces, they were able to create a really dynamic foreground amidst that crazy background. Yeah. Right. So it felt like these characters belonged. Yes. Um, and that really, I think is, one of the only reasons this hyper-realistic, textured, beautiful background was able to work in a film like this. Because otherwise, it would just be so overwhelming. Totally. And I heard for this one, they did it very similarly to Cinderella, where they um, filmed a lot of these scenes in like a live-action studio. They actually have a lot of this filming, which is really cool. You can kind of see it... um, online now and like see how similar it actually ended up being to the uh to the animation and what they like filmed like they like would film philip like falling on a step or something like that and then they would animate it and i heard um with mark and her dress philip um aurora's dress they got like a costume designer to come in and he would like draw it and then she would make it and then like they kind of like tweak it and then um do that together and then they got married which is so cute yeah alice alice davis was the costume designer that they brought in and i think she was actually one of mark's students oh okay at his like school of animation she had always been interested in doing art but women at the time were not being Mm -hmm. hired to be animators so she um considered ink and paint didn't really love that had an interest in textiles so she went to school for fashion design became really Mm -hmm. good at that and then actually had been offered her dream job of being in charge of textile production at a huge factory i think in san francisco but turned it down to work with disney on projects like this one and then obviously like she and mark fell in love hit it off so married but yeah i thought that was i thought it was super fascinating as well like what you said how mark davis animated how they wanted the clothes to work and then mm-hmm. Alice made it happen so that when they filmed those live action references the animation and the clothes seamlessly work together that symbiotic relationship so that it's like this is technically possible if the garment is made this way we can make it happen and I love watching those live action films like the footage because you see Eleanor Audley come in wearing like the Maleficent horns and a cape yes, and delivering so her lines funny. on the soundstage yeah. which is so funny but I mean, yeah. the voice acting was also imperative to the animators designing these characters because the gravity of the story, it's good versus evil. It's an evil being mm-hmm. wanting to kill a 16-year-old girl for whatever reason. She didn't get invited to the party. She was upset. Let's kill her, you know? And That's Eleanor a bad Audley day. had previously played Lady Tremaine. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, she had played a villain before as Lady Tremaine and her mm-hmm. physical presence in the soundstage significantly impacted how Mark Davis animated her. So the way that she moves, like, you know, how she's constantly caressing the end of her mm-hmm. staff or interacting with her raven. I think his name's Diablo, right? Like devil. Sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> raven. Yeah. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. It sounds, yeah. <laughs> sounds like it should be right. Um, yeah. Yeah. She had 
a significant impact on what that looked like. And the same happened with Aurora, the woman who played her, Mary Costa. She was cast Mm -hmm. because Walt felt that her voice, quote unquote, expressed love and that her singing voice could actually act as an extension of speech, which you see in those iconic wonder as I wander once upon a dream scenes where she kind of moves between speaking and singing just effortlessly. And yeah, Walt specifically asked her to paint with her voice, which Mary Costa in interviews is like, I didn't really know what that meant. So I just went for it and it seemed to work. Um, And she had a lot of experience with operatic singing as well, which helped add Mm -hmm. to the gravity of the film. And I mean, the soundtrack for this one, we can't not talk about the soundtrack of Sleeping Beauty because Tchaikovsky's ballets became the inspiration for the score. I did not know that. Yeah. You didn't know that? No, I, I didn't know I that. Think, I think even before I knew it, I, it was one of those things like, of course, because the way that the characters move through the scenes like that, you know, once upon a dream, it looks like they're in a ballet. Like they're, mm-hmm. they're dancing yeah. as if they're part of the music and the environment in such a way. And Disney chose Tchaikovsky because he wanted the film to have a sense of gravitas that couldn't be achieved with what they had been doing before, right? That kind of Broadway pop idea that they had in Cinderella. Remember they had brought in these like hit makers to make music for Cinderella. They didn't want that for Sleeping Beauty. They wanted it to be a little bit more serious. It was another area where it was just like, we we want to do something different. And I heard they actually did write some songs that just like once they kind of put it in with how that the film was looking, it. it just like didn't make it. Once Upon a Dream was the only one. Right. And that's, I think, one of the things that makes this film feel so awkward to me in the overall canon of princess films, and especially the films that Walt had a hand in creating before his death in the 60s. Like, this is not a musical. There's music right. constantly. Yeah. There's almost always music playing, but they use it as a backdrop it's not actually an element of telling the story um which is very different from what we got used to seeing because even films like peter pan right it's there are songs constantly being sung by the characters to move the story along even though it's not like and now the protagonist is going to sit down and sing Mm -hmm. a song about like meeting someone it's the songs were still very intentional and that did not happen here but one of the cool things about this film is it actually once again helped catapult what Disney films would do in future years because they had George Bruins do a lot of the adaptation for the music and he actually was part of films like the Aristocats later on in like the 50s and 60s he became kind of a staple yeah so like Mm -hmm. all of that great Parisian music that was all George Bruins yeah and they recorded this soundtrack at a state-of-the-art studio in germany because of course walt's not going to half-ass anything in this film so it's like oh you have a state-of-the-art studio halfway across the world that i could record this in let's go there that's probably going to sound better and i mean who knows who knows if it actually sounded better recorded there than somewhere in the states just because we can (laughs) it's to say he did it do you know what i mean like this This film is such a flex. Uh, Everything in this film is Disney going, look what we can do. And I'm not mad about it because we got this film out of it. But it was very intentional. Every decision was like, yes, this is expensive, but we're going to do it anyway. And I mean, it kind of paid off with the soundtrack. They were nominated for the Oscar for Best Scoring of a Musical Picture. Did they win? I don't think so. But (laughs) they were nominated, which 
I mean, I'm told to some people is the same thing as winning. It's just nice to be nominated, you know? It's just yeah. nice. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. We're just happy to be here, you know? And I mean, Once Upon a Dream has is one of those Disney songs that everyone knows, even if they yep. don't know the words. It evokes a certain Definitely. feeling of, you know, romanticism and whimsy and all of this. So it all the music is beautiful. So even though it didn't win, it still has had a very significant impact on the Disney canon of music. And I'm happy it's there. It's fun to play mm-hmm. on the piano. Yes. I really enjoy it. Um, and then they also pulled all the technical stops out mm-hmm. with the the picture on this one in terms of like how they filmed it. They um, used a different camera. So they used the 70 milliliter Technorama camera for the first time. For the first time. Wait, 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 wait. Yes. For the first time? I thought that they also used it on Lady and the Tramp. So I think Lady and the Tramp was... No? It was widescreen. So, like, that's why it's, you know, if you watch Lady and the Tramp now, you can see that it was, like, shot in widescreen, which was starting to become all the rage in the 50s. But it wasn't shot on 70 milliliter. It was a different uh, film. Yeah. Millimeter? Millimeter. Milliliter. Correct. Did I say milliliter? (laughs) Oh, boy. You did. Twice now. (laughs) I love it. That'll have to be my apology. That can be your apology. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm Uh, derailing this. Go ahead. Where was I? (laughs) Widescreen. Widescreen. 70 70 millimeter. Milliliter. (laughs) But yes. Millimeter. Yes, because they were shooting on 70 millimeter film, that meant that they had to like cover a lot more space with their uh, artistic backgrounds, with like the scale of the characters. All of that was different for this one. It was like a lot more hands on with the painting. This was also sadly the last film where they um, actually like inked the cells. So just to... Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yes. So just to like explain that process, essentially the animators would draw on paper and then they'd have what's called cleanup artists come in and they're remaking those lines on the actual film cells and then the ink Mm -hmm. and paint artists filling that in with color. So that was the process up until this point. And because this movie took so long and so much money... Did we talk about the right. budget? The budget on this no, movie? No, we didn't. I mean, no, what was it? I th- think it was around the six million dollar mark for the budget, which like doesn't sound like a lot right now, but that was over double what they used to make Cinderella, which was oh, an expensive really? movie at the time. Yes. Yikes. That is, I mean, when you put it in that perspective of double, yes. it seems like a huge amount. Yeah, that's crazy. And just to mention, because we did bring this up, I think, in the Snow White episode, this is where um, a lot of women were starting to get animation jobs. Like, they were actually starting, not necessarily being the main key animator, but assistant animators that would do um, in-between work for the animators and these cleanup artists that would take the animation and be, like, drawing it. You can see in this movie, like, how clean and precise all of the lines are that was all done by those artists so it's like the original animation is going to be rough and then the cleanup artists coming in really really was a big deal on this film and they really had to crew up in that department specifically and it it makes a huge difference it's beautiful yeah it's gorgeous like i 
I mean, we've said it several times in different ways, uh, not Merry Christmas, but that this is a <laughs> stunning film. It doesn't it doesn't yes. compare to any other Disney film before or since. It really is just something that stands out. Yeah. In every way, shape, and form. And I mean, based on what you've just taught me about cleanup animation, that they have a lot of you know, responsibility for making it look as good as it did, mm -hmm. especially when it's so detailed. Everything is so intricately designed yeah. in both the foreground and the background that you need people <laughs> to pay special attention to cleaning up every little bit because otherwise it would look sloppy, right? They didn't have room for any error whatsoever. Yes, absolutely. It's crazy. I think it was even wilder that they were able to pull something this beautiful together when the original Sleeping Beauty story is only a few paragraphs long wow aurora <laughs> often gets dragged across the coals as being super boring because she has mm -hmm. like 16 lines yeah. in her own movie right like we've we've done that we're part we're yes. part of the bullying squad who's like aurora sit down go back to You're sleep the worst. like yeah. you know not necessary um but this of course introduced a lot of challenges for disney as a studio of finding ways to expand the story and make it worth watching as a full-length feature film like not only are they up against godzilla yep. in the 50s but they are trying to make a story that's not that long really interesting so people want to see it and walt decided early on that he wanted to avoid right. subplots so by focusing on the integrity quote unquote of a story that's only a few paragraphs long like how are you going to do that and i am thrilled at their solution we already mentioned that mark yep. davis walt's bless. renaissance man bless him was responsible for animating Maleficent. But I think that his success with animating her was the first example of villains moving center stage. Like, you know how Villains is now its own franchise within Disney? Totally. Maleficent is the original baddie. Like, she was just as lovable in her own way as all the, as her heroic counterparts. Yeah. Yes. Well, people. People are obsessed with her. You're yeah. obsessed with her. I love her. She's my favorite. Right? Yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, like, she's, like, really beautifully done, like, with her, like, badass horns, and she's got, like, the cape and all that stuff, and she's, like, kind of green, which is awesome. And then, like, she's just got yes. no, like, no mercy, like, no patience, and just, like, I love when she, like, laughs at her, like, goons looking for a baby. That's, like, one of my favorite, like, Maleficent moments because she's just, like, the cackle. You idiots. Yeah. Gotta do everything yeah. myself. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I have to do everything myself. Yeah. I feel like that attitude is one I got from you over our times living together. Yeah. Where I have to do everything myself. <laughs> I was always the one who uh, would be bumbling around and you're like, oh, you're such a moron. But, like, in a loving way. <laughs> In a loving way. Um, and also remember that Halloween that you lovingly crafted Maleficent horns out of like duct tape and a swimming cap? Oh my gosh. What a time to be alive. I don't think you've ever been so happy to put on a costume. They are amazing. They looked so good. They looked amazing and you didn't have to buy them from Hot Topic. Yes. It was great. Yes. I loved it. Fave costume. But everything that you're Thank talking you. about. Yeah, no, it was fantastic. I think you got a lot of compliments on that one. I did. Yes, I did. But everything you're talking about is really examples of how Davis achieved one of the illusion of life mm -hmm. animation principles yep. that two other of Walt's nine old men, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson, talked about, which is appeal, right? Without appeal, audiences don't care what she's doing. For sure. Right? And 
when you make a villain nothing but ugly, the way that, you know, the evil queen, for example, when she becomes a hag, she's really just ugly. That shock value is great for a second, yeah. but it has no story strength, no. as they call it, right? So Davis was looking at Maleficent and trying to make her believable and appealing as a personality. And I think you touched on that, some of the reasons you like her. She's conniving. She's like sarcastic. She's witty. She's got those things going on, which makes her equal parts terrifying and seductive, yes, absolutely. which means she's impossible to ignore yeah. anytime she's on screen, right? These are the things that make her the most popular Disney villain. And it's really, I think, a huge reason that they made that amazing showdown between her and Philip as well. Yes. It was like the first dramatic or extended showdown between a villain and a protagonist, right? Yeah. It became a tour de force of the action of the whole film. It's the most exciting part of the film, and it set the stage for what we see in films like Little Mermaid, mm -hmm. you know, Ursula and Ariel, they have a smackdown. Gaston and the Beast, smackdown. Uh, Aladdin and Jafar, smackdown. We didn't have that right. in Snow White or in Cinderella. So the villain is becoming a more interesting part of the story. And as we touched on before, this comes from how good the voice actors were, right? The yep. way that Eleanor Audley spoke, the nuances of her voice and how she moved, it was really highlighted in how Maleficent was drawn and portrayed. And because she just spoke directly to the audience through speeches, Maleficent became such an achievement because that's difficult. It's difficult to make someone who's just kind of monologuing yes. <laughs> really engaging. Yeah. But Mark Davis did it, He's right? The king. Because it, he was able to show all of her subtleties, all those all those things that make her interesting to watch were all there. And I feel like that's why they were able to take take her story and like rebrand it and make that Maleficent movie that came out. I don't know when was that like 10, 15 years ago now and actually have success with that because there was something really solid there to start with. So you, they kind of just like opened and explored like, Oh, like what if this was her backstory and kind of went into that. And that's one of, you know, I think yes. you share my opinion. That's yes. one of our favorite uh, Disney kind of remakes with a, a little bit of a twist that we actually like really, really enjoy. Mm -hmm. And I think they were able to do that because there was such like yes. a, something really solid there to start with. Maleficent was such a robust character on screen that they knew diving into areas of her personality that weren't explored yeah, in the original film sure. would be interesting to people. And I think, and I mean, they also had basically a blank canvas, right? Like Mark Davis illustrated this amazing personality, but there's no story with the personality. Like we already talked about this. So she got upset mm -hmm. that she wasn't invited to a party. So she gets mad. Like that's not really a story, but she is so compelling that we want to know everything we can about this, you know, seemingly silly yes. argument that she had. And I mean, okay, so we get... We get Maleficent and villains as a huge, you know, product or byproduct, lasting legacy of this film. But we also get one of the quintessential Disney artifacts, which is Sleeping Beauty Castle at Disneyland. Beautiful. Like the the castle is gorgeous. Obviously, the castle in the film is not exactly what's at mm -hmm. Disneyland, but that symbol has become synonymous with ideas of romance and magic and nostalgia yep. and the incredible work that they did to animate a beautiful castle and then transform that into something physical at Disneyland. Like this kind of sets in motion the work of Imagineers moving forward, right? Taking things that had only been dreamed of yep. before and then actually making them real for people. Like as, as an Imagineering junkie, this thrills me. 
to my very core and makes me even more excited for the day we can finally go and visit Disneyland together and experience it because it is like one of those iconic Disney things that wouldn't have existed without this film. And it just adds so much to the movie to be able to experience it in real life. You know, that just like adds another dimension, I feel like, to that the film experience of Sleeping Beauty for people to like go and actually be able to see it. It's very cool. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so I think we we both agree this movie, the undertaking that it was stunning, visually beautiful. Like I said, I honestly couldn't stop calling things out to my sleeping family while I was watching it with them last night. But the cost that it came at, yeah, didn't really recoup its its box office back in the day. It's since obviously made its money. They re-released it a number of times, um, brought it out on home video and all of that stuff. So like 70 years later, yes, it's a success. But at the time, it didn't make its money back. And that was a huge problem for the Disney company and kind of the future of animation. So a lot of things had to be adjusted and changed mm-hmm after this um one thing that i'll like mention is we kind of go into what's known as the xerox era well 101 dalmatians i think was the first one that came out and essentially instead of what i was talking about before with them actually taking the the animation from paper and drawing it onto the cells it just got copied oh so they were kind of removed that step of like of redrawing it out and I, I feel like if you watch Sleeping Beauty and then you watch something like 101 Dalmatians after, to me, there's like a huge jarring like quality drop. Jump. Yeah. And like, I mean, it kind of works with like what they were going for, for the look of 101 Dalmatians. That's, you know, uh, a discussion for a different time. Yes. But I feel like it greatly impacted what they were able to accomplish visually mm. on all of their films going forward. And yes. I feel like since while we have this movie and it's beautiful, it kind of came at a cost at changing what animation was going to be for right. Disney studio going forward. Just out of necessity, it sounds like, right? Yes. Because they yeah. just doesn't make its money back. It's no longer like a good, a good business at that point. Right. Right. So. Which, I mean, I know for you and I has long been uh, not a disappointment, but a thing to wrestle with uh, when a company is making decisions simply based on money. Sometimes it can feel like a sacrifice of the art, like of something like animation. But I mean, if we want Disney to continue making films, sometimes that has to happen. And actually, now that you've defined the Xerox era for me, I remember feeling like such a genius detective as a kid when it's like you'd be watching films like The Aristocats and the Jungle Book and Robin Hood kind of close together. And you'd be like, oh, that mm-hmm. looks the same yeah. as in this movie. And my brothers and I felt like such super yeah. suits. We were, yeah. we thought we were geniuses. Turns out everyone <laughs> was noticing this. It wasn't just us. We didn't crack the code, yeah. but it's still, you know what? That yeah. is still exciting <laughs> for us. I still think you're a genius. It's, oh, thank you. Oh my gosh. I think you're a genius as well. Um, <laughs> This Sleeping Beauty ride has been incredible. It's been stunning. It's been romantic. It's been funny at times. It's been invigorating. But we now need to turn our sights to my least favorite princess of all time. Oh, no. (sighs) Dun, dun, dun. The Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid is our next 
undertaking. Uh, I wish I could undertake her. She is the friggin' worst. So I'm not quite emotionally prepared yet. But <laughs> there's going to be a lot to talk about in this in this one. Yes, Lish. What? Because like so much time has gone by. We're talking about jumping from the 50s to 1989. True. So there's there's a lot that's changed. Yeah, Taylor Swift album. We're jumping. We're jumping from ballet to Taylor Swift. Dear God. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> Just kidding. Taylor Swift's not in the Little Mermaid. Yeah. No, but you're right. There's. I'm excited to discover what the main like to see what some of the biggest changes are obviously visually we can pick up on some of that but i think there's going to be a lot of great stuff to unearth and hopefully hopefully i will leave the next episode not hating her quite as viscerally as i do now although let's be honest it's me i've dug my heels in for years probably not going to change my opinion but we'll see i will say you might hate her but you are not going to hate the movie when I'm done with you. I'll just leave it at that. All right. Yes. See what happens. Okay. Okay, Curbs. I have a couple things to apologize for. I really, really made some... Uh, some mistakes on this one. First of all, I'm sorry that I keep getting milliliter and millimeter mixed up. I don't know what's up with that. It's just got some wires crossed in my brain. So I apologize. My second apology, because I have two for this one, is saying that Maleficent came out like 10, 15 years ago. Lies. It came out in 2014. I just have no concept of time. I accept your apologies on behalf of myself and everyone listening. I would also like to apologize, though, to you, Lish, for publicly calling you out on mistaking milliliters and millimeters. It wasn't kind of me, and now that it's recorded forever and ever till the end of time, everyone will know what a jerk I can be, so I'm so sorry. I do love you. I forgive you. And, of course, we want to mention our wonderful resources. This week, we watched a wonderful documentary called Picture Perfect, The Making of Disney's Sleeping Beauty. I also read a wonderful book published by Disney Editions called Mark Davis, Walt Disney's Renaissance Man. And we want to mention The Illusion of Life, Disney's animation by Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson, Legends. And finally, The Art of Walt Disney by Christopher Finch, which is a book I'm pretty sure we'll be referencing for many, many podcast episodes to come. Mm-hmm.